morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we're going to continue going verse by verse through 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 23, starting in verse 8. 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 8. This is God's Word, and we should hear it and receive it as such. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bathshebeth, Takamonite. (laughs) He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi, he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And Yahweh brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah the son of Agi, the Hararite, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and Yahweh worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David, At the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink it. He poured it out to Yahweh and said, far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went and risked their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. He struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff And snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Ashel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Alika of Herod, Halez the Paltite, Ira the son of Ikesh, and Tekoa, Abiezar of Anoth, ben, uh, excuse me, Mabunai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Mahariah of Netophah, Heleb, the son of Bana, of Netophah, Ittai, the son of Ribai, of Gebeah, and the men 
of the people of Benjamin. Benaiah of Pira, Baharim, Eliaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Joshin, Jonathan, Shammah, the Herahite, Ahim, the son of Sharar, the Heretite, Eliphelet, the son of Ahasbai of Makkah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezro of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Egal, the son of Nathan of Zeboah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelak, the Ammonite, Naharai of Beroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come here this morning asking that you would open your word to our eyes, our minds, and our hearts. Father, it is simple as this. You must give us eyes that we could see. You must give us ears that we could hear. You must renew and stir our hearts that we would love as you love. Father, be with our eyes and our ears and our hearts that we might be transformed in our whole selves, soul and body, following after you as you have commanded and enabled, invited, and taught. Father, come and meet with us this morning that we might live and love more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. That was way more painful to do than it was for you to hear. <laughs> it's pretty much like the worst thing I am as a preacher is a bad pronouncer of unfamiliar names. So why labor through it? Why make you suffer it? Because God delights to name his people. And he delights to honor their service and sacrifice in establishing, protecting, or expanding his kingdom. It's also because Israel as a nation has a history, a series of promises and fulfillments. God is with his people and they indeed have done faithful, sacrificial acts. It is easy to look at this and say, well, they did it for Israel. But that's not the whole picture, is it? In doing it for Israel, in serving their nation, they're serving God's kingdom on earth. And therefore, should be remembered and recognized, honored and heralded for the extraordinary ways that God used them in their life, in their time, to accomplish his purposes. You will see as you grow older that organizations that have generations to them will also have portraits along the walls. And often those portraits will be found in prominent places. The entryway of a facility might have a picture of its founder. As you walk into Disney World, that great theological empire, <laughs> if you're in Orlando and you walk down Main Street, whose statue is dead center in the middle where the road starts to split and divide? Who's there? And it's not a tiny statue. It's not an afterthought. Part of what Disney is telling us is that there is someone to remember who is tied to the organization. 
If you walk into a hospital that's been around for more than a minute, you will see beloved administrators have portraits hanging on the walls. If you walk into a seminary, it's likely that you will see their professors beloved from generation to generation adorning the walls at an entranceway, in a hall, in a lecturing place, that we would remember that the things that take place there are tied to a history of those things taking place there. There are many times when we come to genealogies in Scripture and we are bored going through it, or if we're really honest, we barely glimpse upon it, moving instead to the next narration, the next story, the next theological thought or conclusion. This chapter is coming at the climax of the book of Samuel. And we've seen that. We've seen David's last words in an official sense last week. And when we come to this part of this chapter, it's simply an honor roll of kingdom warriors. It's just an honor roll. How many of you, with kids old enough to get awards at the end of a school year, have sat there both proud of your kid and frustrated that everybody else's kid is celebrated too. Because all you want to do is leave. Right? You're glad that your kid is honored, but like all these other kids, like they're kind of in your way. You're way too polite and kind of crowd for that to really take hold. But if we're honest, those things are a little long. I remember one year where we were at Grafton Middle, and I watched the same 20 kids basically running laps in the auditorium. Favorite student here, best citizen there, high achievement here, honor roll, and honor roll, and how many honor roll kids can there be? And yet, your kids will remember, maybe you remember, the day you got recognized for something you did really well. Excellence should be praised. Can we agree? Excellence should be remembered, recognized, and passed on. That we would aspire to be like those presented. Now, make no mistake, what we see here is a list of warriors. They are the elite of the elite faithfully and loyally serving King David. Therefore, they're recognized and remembered as servants of Yahweh. These genealogies matter because the people named in them matter to God and therefore should be esteemed rightly by us. History is not just for teachers, it's for all of us. Amen? So what we see here next is as this honor roll is unfolding, we're going to see some greatest hits. And I think what's being presented here is a top three award ceremony with a tiny little speech so that we would know what they did that separates them from the rest of the 37 who will be simply named and acknowledged later on in the chapter. So we get these first three. We see this in verse 8. The first one named is Josheb Bashatheb, Bethic. Beth, yeah. <laughs> JB was a Tahakemonite. You're allowed to do that, by the way. I don't care if you name him Rick. Remember what he did, okay? And have pity on your pastor who's terrible at this. So here you have JB. And he was a chief of the three. 
The three is a chorus you're going to see throughout this whole chapter. And I really think it's the elite of the elite of the elite. There were three men who did the hardest, most difficult, most courageous, daring, foolish, galling work as warriors. And so here's the greatest of the top three who are the greatest of the supreme elite who are the 37 who will be named later. The best of the best of the best. So what set JB apart? He wielded his spear against 800 men whom he killed. Now, I don't really know what the career stats would be that would measure, right? Like in baseball, they measure everything. So hits and runs and home runs, and we can talk about different eras and different achievements athletically. But apparently, if you kill 800 men in a single battle, you're the best of the best of the best. That's about 792 more than the highest of my imagination for a single battle. This is like a hundredfold what you could imagine. When it says here that he wielded his spear, this is not a javelin that he would throw. It's a way of describing a weapon of thrusting. So that means he is nose to nose with 800 men in a single battle who are there to dispatch him that they might be on some honor roll in their legacy. Thrusting, dead. Thrusting, dead. You're bored at my third attempt. 800, yeah, he's the best of the best of the best. That's not even a career stat. That's at one time. So then we move on to Eleazar, Who's next among the mighty three men? He's the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoi, and he was with David at a particular time in a particular moment when they were defying the Philistines who were gathered for battle and the rest of the men of Israel retreat. They withdraw, probably upon command, and he remains. He remains a fixed presence, a strong force in that moment. Verse 10, he rose and struck down the Philistines. He did this until his, quote, hand was weary. Swords must be gripped, after all. His hand clung to the sword. In other words, he held his sword so prolonged amount of time that the muscles in his forearm, the, the tendons and, and knuckles fused together to such a degree that he couldn't, of his own mental will, let go of the blade. This is a phenomenon that's recorded in history. You'll see it scattered in a lot of history that was fought face-to-face, nose-to-nose, in sword-like combat. In fact, there's tell of a situation where a knight, in the days of knights, in the Renaissance, or you could imagine a guy whose hand fused to such a degree, but it was inside a protective form. You guys familiar with this idea? They actually had to call in a blacksmith in order to get his hand removed from the handle of that sword. Because he had essentially had so much blood and so much weariness that he couldn't open his hand. And the only way for them to literally pry his fingers off his sword was to cut the, the blade by a blacksmith. That is an incredible force of will. To stand when all others retreat, to fight when all others run, 
And to do so to such an exhaustion that his hand won't open. And they literally have to pry his living hand from his sword. It's kind of wimpy when we call it weary or that his hand clung. Sometimes we have to ask what they're really trying to say. And then at the end, the second part of verse 10, we're told, and Yahweh brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. He had won the whole battle by himself. Everybody else runs. He fights and wins against all of them. And the guys come back going, I wonder where Bill is. Oh, uh, oh, wow, he's still in the bottleneck. Oh, wow. Well, let's go help him. Oh, he doesn't need any help. Everyone against him is dead. Let's check the bodies for money. Let's get the corpses ready for burial. We're the victors. We have that obligation. So they just strip the slain. It's all the work that was left for the rest of them to do. That's number two. Let's go to number three. Next to him, we see Shammah, the son of Agi the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of, I know all of you think these are the most valuable things that could ever be defended in the life of a person, right? This is a patch of lentils. I'm not sure that this is a supreme military target stronghold. This is a food supply. This guy really liked soup. You with me? It's a patch of lentils. And the men with him fled from the Philistines. But some farmer got really blessed by God because Shammah stays and he took his stand. In the midst of the plot, that's of land, not of the enemy plot. And he defended it, striking down the Philistines. And Yahweh worked a great what? God even saved the lentils. (laughs) What do you think? Heroes? Honored? Are they worthy? Should we remember them and butcher their names for generations to come? Yeah. 800 fatalities in a single conflict. Standing your ground while everyone else retreats. Cut, cutting down the charging Philistines till your hand freezes. And defending a field of vital food supplies that were sought to be pilfered by the Philistines. There's your top three. There's the three. And then we have the anonymous, which is really weird. Watch 13 through 17. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. We don't know exactly which time this was. If you're looking to place it and understand the context surrounding it a little bit more, you can look in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2, or it might be 2 Samuel 5, verses 17 through 21, and I'll put those references up on the realm later today. But let's see what's happening in this moment. They're encamped in the valley of Raphaim, and David was then inside the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was launching their campaign from Bethlehem, David's town. And David says longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem. You know the one. It's the one by the gate. This is both hilarious and awesome. David wishes out loud because he is, at this point, homesick. How many of you want just a, just a small taste of home, wherever home is? 
Even those of you in military families who were in Hawaii and Canada and other places, you know what it is to have had a slice of home associated in each of those places, yes? It was the pancakes from that restaurant or the wine from that, yeah, we're Presbyterians, we get to drink wine, from that particular valley, that particular region. Some of you, it's a taste of your grandmother's blueberry pie. For some of you, fill in the blank. What tastes like home? What smells like home? What image in your mind is home? That's what David is doing. In the midst of this battle, you know, the supreme general, the king, he's still a man remembering the longings of a boy. And he wants a drink of water that's different from all types of water. Liz, what's my favorite water? How long did that take her? Poland Spring. I don't know why. It's what I grew up in, in just outside Boston. And then the local CVS started selling it. And what's in our bathroom closet today? A, a case of Poland Spring. And when it goes on sale, how many do you buy? Like four at a time of 24 bottles each. Do you catch this? It's just a tiny taste of the best water. And those of you who are thinking water is water, you're wrong. <laughs> David's wish becomes their agenda. Three anonymous men fight savagely through the Philistines and every line of them to get to Bethlehem, which is guarded as a fortress that they might sneak in under the cover of... No, they fought. The verb here is cut. It's the same root that you have to the cutting of a covenant. They cut their way through the Philistines and fought their way victoriously into Bethlehem by the gate, and they get the, the holy elixir, if you will. And they fight their way back with a jug of water because David was homesick. And they thought we must encourage David. If he wishes for something that we can accomplish, we will give our lives to try to bring that about. Is, is it fair to say these are three men who love David? Three men who see David as honor worthy of giving their lives to, to, to ease his burdens? Yeah. Yeah. 25 miles round trip of suffering and slaughter how many of you couldn't walk 25 miles round trip at one time? How many of you might be able to run 25 miles round trip? Are you doing it in heavy leather armor? Are you doing it arrayed with weapons that are necessary for your survival? Are you doing it hacking your way through the enemy Man after man after man after man, corpse after corpse after corpse. Your presence announced the entire way there. And your presence announced the entire way back. That David would no longer be parched. That he'd have the joy of his favorite water. Thank you. Does this seem proportionally reasonable at all? Or is this ludicrous? 
David gets the water. They go and they get it and they bring it to David. Read the last sentence of verse 16. But David would not what? Are you serious? We hacked our way 25 miles, corpse after corpse after corpse, bad guy after bad guy after bad guy. We took the battle to them that you would drink. You were the only outcome we wanted. We suffered and sacrificed our lives, willing to bleed and die, that you would drink the water that would heal your homesickness. David not only doesn't drink it as if he's going to like put the Dom Perignon on the shelf waiting for the day of celebration, waiting for the victory to be secured. David doesn't save the water. He dumps out the water in front of them. Is David free to do with the water whatever he wants? David free to do with the water whatever he wants. Is the water really his or is it theirs? Or are they offering their service to David in such a way that David is free to do whatever he wants with the water they have given him? I mean, he's the king, right? Of course he's free. And of course, in the hearts of the men... They want what David wants. Write that down. They want what David wants. What David does with whatever they give, he's free in. Is this true of your life as a Christian? That God is free to do with whatever you give him in whatever way he wants? Is your life one that you want whatever God wants? Period. It might cost you your blood or your sweat or your tears, and you might not get to run 25 miles round trip hacking your way there and back. Sometimes it's probably easier for us to offer all of it in one moment. Yes? But God has called us as his servants to offer it every day. His wish, our agenda. His purpose, our purpose. Do you hear me? What an unbelievable act of devotion that these men give to David. So why is David wasting this water? It's water from Bethlehem. It's his homesick fantasy. Why on earth is he pouring it out? Because David sees it as greater than his homesick wish. And David doesn't see it as wasting the water. Listen very carefully. David doesn't drink it. Instead, he pours it out to whom? Yeah, Yahweh gets to drink it. It's a metaphor. God doesn't manifest lips and swallow it, right? But as David pours it out upon the ground, in that cave, he's saying there's something here that represents something greater than the water I want. Listen to David's words. In 17, he says, far be it from me, O Lord. Is he talking to the guys who brought him the water? They're present, aren't they? But they hear his prayer. As King David talks to the king of kings, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. 
Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? David is regarding the water from Bethlehem as a cup or a goblet filled with the blood of the men who staked their blood on its retrieval. David couldn't receive it on its face value. It's too extraordinary. Extra. Ordinary. It's not a strong enough word here, is it? This is a living embodiment of their love of David. Their affection and esteem for David. And David says, I am not worthy of receiving that level of worship. Remember in the Hebrew, the word serve and the word worship, same. So if you're serving the Lord, you're worshiping the Lord. And if you're worshiping the Lord, you're serving the Lord. David sees their act as one of devotion and worship. And David says, it is not right for man to drink blood. Blood belongs to God. Blood is what we offer God. Blood is a representation of all of the things we know to be about Life. How many Levitical statements and commands for the sacrificial system in Deuteronomy and Leviticus are tied to this idea that blood is the only thing that satisfies God in dealing with sin. Sometimes we ask the question, how much does David really know about Jesus? Right? How much does he really know about Jesus? He knows enough to know that that which symbolizes blood does not belong to him. That only God can drink blood and be satisfied. Maybe we say that differently. Blood is the only drink that satisfies God. David pours out the water as a blood-sacrificed offering. That's why we're told at the end of 17 he wouldn't drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Are you in awe yet? Now, does one man usually get to kill 800 men in a single battle? Is that typical or normal? Does one man stand his ground against hordes of attacking men despite the retreat of his team, his army, his brothers? Does he alone cut down charging hordes so much so that he can't let go of the sword? when all is said and done and the bodies are no more work to be done by him? Is it normal for a man to defend a field of food from pilfering Philistines all on his own? Is that normal? No. The secret to understanding this honor roll is that for as noble and powerful and excellent as these men are, for all the gall that it would take, the ridiculous courage that they would have to have, the faith that their lives are worth this battle, and the victories that are not certain. If you knew if you gave your life it would win, are you not more likely to give your life? Yeah! Every parent in here knows that they would lay their life down for their kids, yes? Doesn't matter how estranged you are. Doesn't matter how anger fills your life. That's your responsibility. Those are the objects of your affection. You would make that decision 100% of the time. 
Would you still make it if it's uncertain in the outcome? Would you still do it if the odds are slim or small? Anybody wondering? If you're wondering, kids, look at your parents. Look your dad in his eyes. Look your mom in his eyes, her eyes. Is there any doubt, any wonder? Every time these guys risked their lives, it was with uncertain outcomes. And yet God is faithful, amen? God is the one who secures the victory. We're told that twice, are we not? Verse 10, Yahweh brought about a great victory that day. Verse 12, Yahweh worked a great victory. All of their daring, all of their courage, all of the audacity and raw gall. Did I mention courage? Courage. Excellence. Did I mention excellence? Are there names remembered for me to butcher? Because they were mediocre? They offered a little bit? No, these offer their lives in excellence to God. And when, Den, when David pours out the drink, most of us might start with anger. Do you not value what I offered? We might see it as a waste, but his men don't. They don't have anger, they have admiration. And they don't see it as a waste, they see it as worship. This water from Bethlehem represented the blood of his men and blood belongs to Yahweh. So he pours the water out in worship to Yahweh because it belonged not to David, but to Yahweh. Only Yahweh is worthy of such sacrifice. Now we turn our attention in verse 18 to Abishai who's the brother of Joab. Joab's a pretty major character in this book, as is Abishai, the sons of Zeruiah. He was the chief of the 30. So you have the three, you have the anonymous, and now you have these two, one of whom is chief of the 30. And he, at one point, wielded his spear, remember, thrusting weapon, against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. How many of you have seen a beauty pageant at some point in your life? And you're like, first place, second place, third place, and then they have what? Honorable what? Honorable what? Mentions. Honorable mentions. These are like your almost finishers. These are the first losers. I mean, this is the honor roll. They're not in the top three, but the next two are pretty dang close and had resumes that put them in the conversation. Poor Peyton Manning, huh? If it wasn't for Tom Brady, Peyton Manning could be a goat, right? Just making sure you're alive. He's not the guy. He's not in the top three, but dang, his career is worth remembering. His service and sacrifice worth recognizing and heralding. Because he wielded his spear against 300 men, killing them and winning a name alongside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30, and he became their commander, but he didn't attain to the three. And then there's Benaniah. He's the son of Jehoda, who was himself a valiant man, uh, a man of Kabzeel. He's a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. We don't really know what the word aerials means. You'll see that in the footnote in your text. Here's what my study uncovers, and I think this is right. I think there was a guy named Ariel, not a mermaid, who had two honor roll caliber sons for the opposing armies of Moab. 
I think if you were to look in the Chronicles of Moab, you would find a stalwart guy, and these are his two magnificent sons. And so, number two here earns his badge, Benai, because he took down the honor roll worthy sons of an honor roll worthy man in the Moabite army. He also went down into a pit and struck down a lion who was in that pit on a day when it, is this a fairy tale? Like, this is worth remembering. This is not myth. This is history. This guy saw a lion in a pit on a day when it snowed and thought dinner. He jumps in the pit and fights the lion. And we remember his name, not as a village idiot who died to the lion, but as a great warrior who overcame in the snow... A lion. That's not the only story we have to remember about him. The second one is he struck down an Egyptian. Now, we translated here a handsome man. I don't really think that's what was on Benai's mind. Ooh, look how pretty he is. I'm pretty sure this is a massive Egyptian, not necessarily a handsome one, but we don't really know. But what we do know is the Egyptian had this thrusting spear in his hand, and Benai had like a staff or a stick or a club. And so his weapon wasn't as good as the Egyptian's weapon, so he prized the Egyptian's weapon from him and kills the guy with his own spear. I think the lion's storage is, is better in the snow. But I don't know how pretty the Egyptian was. These are things that Benai, the son of Jehoiada, had won, and doing so, he wins a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he too did not attain to the three. David did set him over his bodyguard. I guess if you take on lions, as David once did, you get to hang out with him. Who are these guys? What is this 30? These are SEAL Team 6. Does that help? These are the best of the best of the best. They're the elite, the rangers. They're the airborne guys, and I'm way out of my depth right now. Help a brother out, 101? Yeah. They're the guys who go in in the dark of night and snatch bin Laden. And if they have to, execute him. The difference is we usually don't know their names. The CIA has men and women who have given their lives in service. And their names are not known to the population. True? Somebody who's been there has told me that they do have ways of honoring those service men and women. That they are known, but it's within the agency, not outside it. What's the big deal? All right, kids, if you don't know who SEAL Team 6 is, have you seen Star Wars? The guys in the red suits? The Emperor's Guard? That's the bodyguard. That's what these guys are. The best of the best of the best of the best. And then we have the rest of the honor roll. And for these men, we don't get the blurb or the sentence or the story. But we do have their name and usually their lineage. Or in a few cases, their hometown. You'll probably remember the lion on the day of snow. But that shouldn't be the theological witness of the text, should it? The theological witness of this text is very simple. These names are there because they were excellent in their calling. These names are here compiled and passed down from generation to generation to generation. 
because they were excellent in their calling, because they offered the full measure of their devotion to God in serving David, serving the kingdom of God on earth. They were excellent in their calling. So here's my application to that testimony. I have three questions. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your vocation is. I have three questions for you. Children of God at any age, in any stage of life, three questions. One, what are you built for? What are you built to do? Another way of getting at this is what is your calling? That's the same question. What are you built for? What is your calling? It's a question of stewardship. What gifts have you been given for the work you're called to do? We named this church after Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, yes? For it is by grace that you have been saved. Yes? The faith given to you. Yes? Not by works. Yes? Lest none of us boast. Yes? What's verse 10? For we are God's workmanship created by God for good works that we should walk them out. What are you built for? How are you specifically and uniquely called by God to do his work? What are his purposes that he fulfills through your worship, through your service, through your excellence? What is your calling? What are you built to do? How do you steward your whole self? Second, what hinders you from living out your calling? What are the obstacles you face to living out what you are called to do, who you are called to be? What hinders what diminishes your excellence? What prevents you or ensnares you or captures you or enslaves you or cripples you? What is the obstacle that you must fight through in the power and strength of Christ at work in you? Is there something in your life and circumstance that God must overcome and grant victory in? Or are those obstacles beyond his capabilities? Are these obstacles beyond his ability to empower you, enable you, strengthen you, that you could stand and fight? that you could cut through the enemies? What hinders you? What diminishes you from giving every drop of blood, sweat, and tears in service to Christ? Third, will Yahweh give you victory over the obstacle, out of the pit, breaking the chains, freeing you from the snaring sin of your circumstance or people? Will God, will Yahweh give you his overcoming grace and mercy not to stay where you are, but to live out your calling? And when will you know if you will have victory against these forces? And do you have to have the certainty of victory before you will take on the obstacles? 
How many of you are 25 and under? Raise your hand. How many of you are 70 and under? How many of you are over 70 but still in the fight? Still in the service? Still at war with the enemy? And will you stay there until your final breath? Standing while others retreat. You weren't made to fit in. All of you. You were not made to fit in. To fit in at work, to fit in in your classroom, to fit in in your occupation, to fit in perhaps even in your family. You weren't made to fit in. You were made by God to stand out, to go against, to preserve and protect what others would seek to destroy. You were made by God to fit in. No! How much of your mind is captured by the question, do I fit in? How much of your life is curbed and hindered and diminished in service to God because you don't want to be one of those Jesus freaks, one of those weirdos, one of those Christians? Now, I'll be sure that most of the guys who are famous on TV for being Christian pastors, I do not agree with, nor do I seek to emulate. But I'd rather be more like them in some ways than be silent in the perception of others. You were not made to fit in. You were designed and called by God specifically for good works. And every drop of blood and sweat and tears is what Jesus is worthy of. Yes? Yes? So stand up. Be counted faithful. Take courage. Dare to worship the Lord in public as in private. Dare to serve and pursue excellence. God never tires of naming the names of his loved ones. God never tires of naming the names of his people. Do you tire of naming the name of Jesus among your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, your coworkers, your customers, or classmates. Brothers and sisters, if we are to honor what is being honored here, then we are to see the cups of water that are our lives as worthy only unto the Lord. Pour your blood out in service of the one who bled and died to strengthen you and renew you, to redeem and sanctify you. My command, my application, my instruction is to forsake whoever or whatever hinders or diminishes your excellence and takes away your courage. Amen? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, left to ourselves, lack all excellence. Father, we, left to ourselves, will never make an honor roll of kingdom servants. We will never be remembered beyond a few generations. But Father, we pray that it is not our name that is heralded among the saints in the world. That it is not our name as by grace, as a church, as a movement. We don't even care about the name of the PCA. The only name we desire to herald is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who lived and died, suffered and rose again for our justification, our adoption, and our sanctification. Come, O oh Lord, and show us our sin. Convict us of our running from you. Convict us that we might see the obstacles that stand in the way of the ministry that you have called us to, and empower us, O oh Lord, to cut our way through, that you would grant victory.
and lead us in excellence and courage and that we would trust you to use that in whatever way you will. We, your people, ask this in your name, O oh God. And all God's people agree.